You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Okay, everybody, I think we're live. You are watching Wake Up Call Live. I'm your host, Christina Previtt. And today we are talking about Divorce Corp again. Hopefully you joined us yesterday when we started our conversation about the documentary Divorce Corp, which you can find on Amazon Prime. And I've got three new divorce lawyers with me today for part two. We're going to hear what they think, but we're also, this is not just going to be a bitch fest. We are going to talk about things that we can do, some ideas we have to maybe improve the system. So joining me um, in no particular order, but of course, John has to go first because he is my business partner. He is the other half of NetSquire. And um, we do amicable divorces. Yes, it is a thing. He is from Texas, but lives in New Jersey now with me. So we're in Jersey. Also joining me is Jennifer Hargrave. She is a divorce lawyer in Dallas, Texas. And Teresa DeFord is also in Texas, the Woodlands, Texas. I'm told it's not just Woodlands, it's the Woodlands. <laughs> so I have to get that right. So Texas is representing today. So without any further ado, what did what did y'all think of Divorce Corp? I, I mean, I'll just jump in here. I mean, it is um, it, it, it is a rude awakening, I think. That it, it, there was a lot of exaggeration in there, but there's also a lot of truth. And that's the part of it that I think is so important for people to know and um, to watch and to really be empowered so that they can understand the business of divorce um, and how, you know, conflict can just chew up a family and spit it out. And I think um, I think there was a lot in there that was eye opening. Uh, and then, you know, of course, I've got it's not it's not all accurate. I mean, I think that there's some danger too associated with it, but that's my overall first impression for you is I think um, it's something that is good for people to watch, but also take it with a grain of salt. Okay. Well, we'll dig in a little bit more, but I just kind of generally want to hear what was your reaction, Teresa, John, when you watched it? So my reaction right off, actually, I watched it with my husband, which was interesting. And we both thought it was just like an attack piece. I mean, it was just, it definitely had an agenda. My husband even said, he says like a Michael Moore documentary. Um, We felt like it was overblown. I really, I, I I do agree, Jennifer, that there are some, some, some points in there that are true. There's some truth to it, but it felt much more like an attack. And of course, maybe as a divorce lawyer, I was taking it a little personally, but but I do think there's things we can learn from it and, and we can use that to perhaps change the perception of how we as divorce la- lawyers are perceived and also hopefully, you know, make some switches to the system. I agree. John? Yeah, I actually agree with both of you two. That uh, Basically, I think what, this was an attack piece. I mean, documentaries do have agendas usually. Um, I mean, when people do them, they, they say they're objective, but there's usually a purpose to why they're presenting this documentary. Uh, but I do think there was a lot more truth in it than maybe attorneys want to admit. 
Um, and obviously there's some geographic differences, um, mm-hmm. but we all, depending, regardless of where we are, we all encounter the same things, the same challenges within the legal system. So I do think that there was enough truth in it that it warrants this conversation. But I do agree with Teresa. I do think by and large, it was slanted in one direction. It was not a balanced presentation of the issues. So, but that's why we're having this conversation today, right, Christina? So we can make it more balanced. Yeah. So, um, you know, I sort of explained yesterday that the, this, this documentary, I think first came out somewhere around 2014. So it's a little older, but it's not outdated um, because, you know, a lot of the things that they did talk about still exist today. And as we know, the system changes very slowly. I mean, I don't know what they're doing in Texas, but here it was only because of the pandemic that we actually started utilizing um, e-filing in family court here in New Jersey and Zoom conferences. And to me, that's, to me, it's just absurd that we're not using technology to have the court run more efficiently, to have people's cases handled more efficiently. I mean, why should attorneys still be driving to court and waiting in the hallway, sometimes for hours for their case to be called and we're billing the clients for it? I mean, you know, part of divorce, the main, you know, thread of Divorce Corp was how we're all these vampires, right? That we're just churning files and milking people for money. I mean, I guess if I had to hire someone to go sit in the hallway for five hours, I might think that too, uh, because it does seem a little ridiculous when we have Zoom. So I'm glad to see that we're taking better advantage of that. Um, But overall, there was a lot of hyperbole in it, but I think there was still some truth even to, to what was hyperbolic. And some of it um, that wasn't so exaggerated, I, I think there were definitely there were threads of truth. And, you know, you already noted, John, that there were some geographic issues like, you know, they, I think a lot of the cases were in California. Um, but I think overall, the problem that I have that I've seen over the past 10 years since I first watched that and I had a different opinion, having grown as an attorney, um, you know, I think I see more of the truth in Divorce Corp than I did the very first time that I watched it 10 years ago. And I do think that there are far too many attorneys that churn the file, encourage people to litigate, encourage them to argue about ridiculousness, and don't focus instead on, you know, how can we wrap this up for this family? Because how can anybody say that the best thing for the, this family, whatever family it is, that the best thing isn't for them to be done with their divorce? I mean, could there ever be another answer to that question? What's in their best interest? No, no. Empowering them to make their own decisions is, is really the answer. And, and Jennifer said that, you know, we, you know, we need to empower these people. And I think that was the one thing that, you know, the big overarching theme I got from the documentary is that all of the people that were interviewed there all felt like victims and maybe they were victims of, of the process, but a lot of it is just being a victim of not knowing what's going to happen, um, how to control it themselves, because, you know, the, the clients themselves do have a lot more control over that situation than they understand 
Um, and, and we need to empower them more to be able to take control and make sure they get to the right result without going in front of a judge. That's exactly right, Teresa. I was just going to chime in because I thought one of the problems I have with this is it really made um, the, the parties, the families, a victim of the process. It talked about the victimization and the perpetrator, but but the, the film itself really, I thought, left, left people with sort of this helpless sense. And I don't think that's the truth. I think the reality is that when people are empowered and that they are, are able, they have more knowledge, they're able to take control of the process, they're able to hire the right team to help them, I think that they can have much different outcomes. And so that was one of the, the real criticisms I had was that it really just you know portrayed this further victimization of people without really without really empowering them and helping them understand how they can have different outcomes in the process. Yeah, you're right. Um, I like that word empowered. That was actually something I was thinking of uh, earlier when my mind was wandering thinking about this. I didn't hear anybody really try to emphasize that. And I think a lot has to do with who, everybody's got their own personality, right? Like a stay-at-home mom for 30 years who doesn't even know where the checkbook is or where the bank accounts are isn't suddenly going, you know, she's not going to do a 180 in her personality in a week because she's getting a divorce. But I do think that it's incumbent on the attorneys to, you know, steer the ship, if, if you will. You know, and I, unfortunately, I think a lot of attorneys are one-trick ponies. They know how to litigate. That's what they know how to do. And yeah. they sort of follow a script. I mean, I don't know exactly what your procedure is in Texas, but I, I would say in the beginning, you surely, are you surprised when someone always starts out with a complaint instead of making any kind of effort to see if, the, if this case is ripe for mediation or settlement before you actually file? Um, you know, unless something's different in Texas, we're John and I always talk about that. How our introduction to our adversary is because they served us with a complaint. I never understand that. That that is not a person who is looking towards resolution. And yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I think that I think that's a really good point. You know, things are a little different here in Texas. So okay. typically, we we file the petition, and that starts the it sort of starts the time ticking. Um, for people, but, but we don't have to serve people right away. And so you're right. Sort of the one trick pony is there are lots of lawyers who are like, well, I always serve the other side. And there's not really a necessity to do that unless, unless there's some emergency motions or reasons why we have to do that. But for the most part, you know, we can sit down and have a conversation. We can, we can send a letter and invite somebody to a process, give them an opportunity to go get a lawyer. I think, you know, when you're served out of the blue with divorce papers, I mean, that like, that is terrifying to people. Mm -hmm. And that really positions them for that nuclear war, so to speak, is what's coming. And so often it's just not necessary. You know, we can, we yeah. can do this in another way of inviting people to the table. I always say, I mean, most of the time that divorce shouldn't come as a surprise, right? This shouldn't be the first conversation you're having about divorce as <laughs> right. I filed a, a petition. I mean, hopefully that there have been other conversations along the way that have, you know, so people know that it's coming. And I, I think we can, we, that our families deserve a better way. That's, that's always my message is the civil litigation process um, that's meant for corporations and, you know, insurance defense and all of that. It's not, it's not designed to really respect the integrity of our families. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you guys think that the system is really, um, 
it, it doesn't create a hospitable environment for that. It doesn't necessarily encourage that. It it allows people who want to fight, whether that's the attorney encouraging it or if it's sometimes, you know, I'm not going to blame the attorney. Sometimes it's the litigants. It allows them to do that. So if you want it, you can have it. I mean, I think the court system. Oh, go ahead, John. Oh, no, but I was going to say, I think this but this does go back to the education of the litigants and the first professional they come in contact with. Um, you know, Christine and I have been doing a uh, divorce without fighting model where we try to get people into mediation and other things. And oftentimes we're the first professional they have in contact with and we're encouraging them and showing them why this mediation process is so much better than the court system. And I don't think many litigants are having that little bird chirping in their ear right off the bat. More often than not, they just go to an attorney and that attorney reflexively files the petition or the complaint. Um, And, you know, even I'm assuming you can do this in Texas, but even in New Jersey, if we don't want to file a complaint, but we want to end the marriage for purposes of distributing assets, we can stipulate to an end date of the marriage. We can just agree amongst everybody that the marriage is over as of this date. We don't have to Mm -hmm. enter the court system (laughs) unless we choose to enter the court system. And that is a choice. And I think that, and again, it is different in every state, but it's that you can make a choice as an attorney to go down the litigation road. Now there's all kinds of reasons why you would have to do that. You know, if someone's trying to take a child out of state or someone stops paying the mortgage or whatever else is going on, there might be a legitimate reason you have to go to court. But for most people, like, I just feel like they don't have that bird chirping in their ear that there is another way. You know, there's collaborative law, there's mediation, there's these other ways to accomplish the same goal. And because they don't know that, because they don't understand that, they're sort of at the mercy of the first professional that gets in their ear. And unfortunately, in my opinion, a lot of times that's the people that reflexively file the complaint, they're an old dog, can't teach a new trick, they file the complaint, they just go into the system, and all of a sudden these parties are spending money they don't need to be spending to get to the same place that they're going to get to. Yeah, I just, I'm I'm hearing them in my head going, but this is how we've always done it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's, I think it's really for, as us as divorce professionals, understanding our role as a problem solver, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not, we're not just a junkyard dog. We're not just like an attack dog to go out there and- The bulldog. The bulldog and and try and bring people down. And, um, And I think it's so important for people to understand there are different types of lawyers. And when you're interviewing lawyers, you really need to know what kind of advocate are you are you hiring? Is this a person who views their, themselves only as the courtroom advocate where they're going to go in and argue on your behalf? Or is this somebody who can really help you even stay out of the courtroom? Yeah, they, they need to know that they that they can tell the professional that they're dealing with what their goals are and and find out if they meet. And if that if that lawyer is not looking out for their goals, they can find somebody else. You're absolutely right. But, you know, sometimes we get people that just because of their personality and not to mention that, you know, I don't want to gloss over the fact that this is a very stressful experience for people. And maybe they're not quite themselves while they're going through a divorce, but are they the kind of person that is empowered and does want to make decisions or are they the kind of person that just 
is accustomed to letting everybody else make the decisions for them. I mean, I've had plenty of clients say, well, I don't know what to do. What do you think I should do? And I certainly don't want that responsibility, right? <laughs> Later on when they don't like what I decided for them. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we, we definitely get into a situation where we're, we're more like psychologists counseling the person, well, but there's legal counsel as well, you know, advising them what their options are. Um, and, and something that I like to do always is a cost benefit analysis, you know, which isn't always measured in dollars, you know, no. okay, you, maybe you would win this, you have a strong claim, but it's going to take at least a year of litigation. It's going to cost a lot of money and, and emotional energy and not being done. And is, is that a cost that you're willing to pay? Sometimes it's not. Well, and I think you bring up a really important point, and that is the cost. You know, they, they pointed out in the divorce court movie um, <clears throat> about our lawyers going and looking through the inventories to identify the assets. And that that's going to determine the the course of the litigation. And, you know, I, ha I have felt like that sometimes. I have felt like with my opposing counsel, it's exactly what they're doing. They see deep pockets here and they're just going to turn it and milk it. And I, I would love to say that isn't the case, but unfortunately, I think sometimes it is. It does and happen. I think one of the biggest challenges, especially when you're working with high net worth families, is that you realize that cost isn't the, con isn't, um, the container, right? It isn't going, it isn't the restrictive factor because it's, if you have unlimited resources, people will fight for years and years and years and that absolutely happens in our legal system and but I always want to point out to people that there are other things that are more valuable than money like your time you are going to spend years in this litigation system you're going to lose your children's childhood because you guys were fighting it out and time is that one that one resource that asset that you, you don't ever get back so you know when we're talking to people even about the cost cost may not always be the most important thing there are other factors at play and people really need to know and evaluate that as they're looking at their decisions. Well, how often do you hear? I mean, one of the most common things we hear is when's this going to be over? <laughs> Why is this taking so long? <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, I think time is, is so important and it was interesting to, to watch divorce corp. And then I, I watched your show yesterday, Christina, and, and to hear different jurisdictions and how they handle time. I mean, in Texas, the Supreme Court has said, we think that divorces should be done in a year. Um, and, and the courts in, in my local jurisdiction absolutely follow that. I, I'm sure there are other jurisdictions. I could tell you even, you know, I'm in the Woodlands, which is just north of Houston. We practice in Houston as well. And, and the Houston judges are not as strict about this. But in my local jurisdiction, if you're not done in a year, you will be done. I mean, they will make you be done with a divorce, at least. Obviously, if there's continuing continuing child custody litigation, that that may continue over years. But um, you know, with modifications and and such. But but the divorce itself is going to be done in a year, and I think that's a a great benefit um, if courts can can require that. You know that that we not drag this out for years and years from a cost perspective, from a sanity perspective, people need to be done. Well, I, I like that. I mean, I was just complaining yesterday that in New Jersey, we used to get trial dates very early in the case. I mean, they were, you know, put out over like the next nine to 12 months, but you, you knew they were there, you knew they were looming. So there was something to work against, you know, there was sort of like a deadline. <laughs> and I do think that people, um, 
their mindset was different when they knew that there was a, a definite trial date and they settled before that date. Now, what we're seeing more often here is they just never set a trial date. And mm -hmm. they just they just tell you, oh, well, you know, it's we're backlogged. There's not enough judges. Uh, maybe you'll get a, a trial date in a couple of years. And I think they I think sometimes they say that sort of with this tone of like, okay, well, you're being punished because you're not settling. So good luck getting a trial date. But I think it has the opposite effect. It's like, oh, we could do this forever. Ugh, it's terrible. I think. I think it's so hard for families to be in that it's stuck in that limbo position. And so, you know, when we're talking about the court system, there's definitely value to it. Like, I think that our courts play such an important role in helping us bring an end to the conflict and the chaos and the litigation. Um, the, I, I'm envious, Teresa, because that's not happening in Dallas. So um, <laughs> our courts are not holding to a one-year deadline. Yeah, in I fact, think they did. That I mean, yeah. at least here in Jersey, I think that would help a lot because I guess the question that keeps coming to my mind is we're, you know, we could easily complain about what the lawyers do wrong, what the litigants do wrong, but the fact remains, there's still an environment that allows them to do that. Right. So if there wasn't, if, you know, if the system itself was different and it can be different, it just takes people who want to make it different and change it. Um, they wouldn't be able to do it. So one of the things that I thought was what rang true in my experience is people, is lawyers, especially filing frivolous complaints, um, bringing protective orders when there is no family violence and using those, those kind of um, tools to, you know, get a leg up in the litigation. And I repeatedly, we see people abuse the discovery process with no sanctions, file frivolous filings with no sanctions. I'm just curious what you all are seeing, because I think that's one area where I think lawyers should be holding each other more accountable. I think when we're playing games with people's livelihoods like this, it's really a travesty. I could not agree more with you. Um, you know, I you hear stories all the time. I, in fact, I heard a story last night about an attorney that encouraged their client to do something during Thanksgiving when all of our judges in New Jersey are at a judicial college and they really don't hear many applications because he knew that the other side probably wouldn't be able to come into court and do anything about it that week. I mean, then you get to domestic violence uh, complaints. We are, a lot of attorneys tell their clients, well, the only way to get, you know, your husband out of the house, your wife out of the house is to get a restraining order against yeah. them or whatever you guys call it in Texas. And, you know, it's it's actually gotten to the point where um, in my in another part of my life, I divorce coach and it's gotten so bad that one of the things I do with every and I only coach men is that I have I have this entire part of preparation where I talk to them about protecting themselves from frivolous domestic violence complaints mm -hmm. because it is so prevalent and it's and it really is it's a horrible thing for the entire family and then if you put that into a divorce and we all know if you have a domestic violence allegation that's nonsense and then you have a divorce the divorce is going to be that much more difficult to settle and so i really feel like it has gotten to the point where and i blame attorneys a lot for this because i feel like their clients tell them something that is not domestic violence. It's there's no way it's domestic violence. It's just them fighting. It's just them, you know, living in the same house, going through a divorce, being very, you know, emotional instead of trying to counsel them about ways to reduce the temperature in the room, ways to 
you know, put out the flame and to try to get serious about getting it done. And this is where we get back to, you know, some attorneys just don't do what they need to do in order to get the case done quicker. And I really feel like that there's more attorneys that are doing that than we all want to admit. I mean, the people that are here talking today, we're, none of us are a problem. We're, we're, all, we're all really committed to trying to help families be problem solvers. I mean, Christina and I, we've called ourselves professional problem solvers for years because that's really what we should be doing. But we have to tell our clients, your spouse retained this particular person and we know this attorney to do X, Y, and Z. And that's where it gets really hard for us because there's two attorneys, two litigants, there's four personalities in a divorce. And that's where it gets really difficult. And I, and I feel like that's where we, people need to remember is that you may hire somebody that is committed to helping you reduce your costs, keep everything you know, quickly, and your spouse may retain somebody that has exactly the opposite intention. And that's where this whole process gets very difficult. It is, and and they pointed out in the the article or in the the documentary that it's 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 all or nothing. Like you can't not show up and fight those because you risk losing everything if you don't show up to defend yourself in a protective violent in a family violence situation. You could lose everything. How do they? How does a protective order work in Texas? Because here, you get a temporary, but then you have a hearing, and if the court uh, turns it into a final restraining order, that's permanent. It's forever. It doesn't Same. expire. Okay. Oh uh, well, our our protective orders are good for two years. And then you can petition the court to extend that if somebody's been violating it. But we have the same process so that you you know you file your ex parte uh, temporary protective order. And then, and that's good for about, I think, 14 days. And you have to have your hearing on that. And then the court will issue a final protective order. And that. I think there should be some sort of hybrid in New Jersey. This should just be, you know, not forever, but just for right now. Because we all know that when we get a case, sometimes you're like, these are two people that should not be living together and really should should be talking as little as possible. Because, <laughs> you know, until the emotions settle down, maybe when the divorce is done, they, they um, can't live together. And again, you know, probably should just not talk. So there's a lot of people that definitely should not be talking. I know, right? That's Um, not unique to New Jersey, I promise you. (laughs) Um, But you know what I find difficult too is we'll we'll often be asked the question, how do I get this person out of the house? You know, we can't live together. Can I leave? Can he leave? And unfortunately, the problem that we encounter strategically is that I'll have to say, well, you can leave. But if you do, you can't take the children with you. So you need to have some sort of, uh, you know, temporary custody plan in place. Because if you just leave, you can't, can't take the kids. And then you know that the other side is going to blast the person for that. Like, oh, you just left and left your kids behind. Yeah. Uh, you know that's going to come back on them. And they're only going to see the kids when the other parent lets them because they left. Um, so that's a problem. And then the other problem too, is that you, you can leave, but you can't leave your financial obligations behind. So most people are just not in a position to maintain two households. That's exactly so, right. It's so then what up. does that person do? You know, they can yeah. move out, but they might not see their kids much. 
and they still have to pay all the bills. You know, they still have to maintain the status quo. And if they can't afford to do to that plus maintain another apartment, they're stuck there. So, um, you know, we can't solve the problem of there not being enough money. But I'm, you know, I can't do that. But well, I, and not not to mention, Christina, I mean, leaving the house reduces the encouragement to settle the case, too. I mean, That's when right. two people are having to stare at each other every day, I find that really helps them encourage them. <laughs> I mean, if there's not if there's not a restraint, if it doesn't turn into a restraining order, that sometimes encourages people just to want to get it done because they don't want to stare at them anymore. Like, let's let's move things along. So for all those reasons, you stay in the house. And then sometimes it turns into these restraining orders and other things. But yeah, it's difficult. I would love to see the... Um the idea that people have in their heads um, that's grown over a long period of time, like War of the Roses comes to mind. It, have you guys seen that movie? Mm -hmm. A long time yeah. ago. Crazy. Watch it again. I might watch it again just for fun. <laughs> but, um, you know, people do have this perception that, that that is what divorce is. And I'm not suggesting that everyone should just be like friends and, you know, still love each other and hold hands and all that we know it's we're all humans we have emotions you know this is a, a terrible time to go through a divorce but at the same time i'm so tired of hearing people say well i want a shark i want a pit bull they don't even know what the hell that means i don't but think you know they don't even know what they're saying they have no idea and it comes from a place of fear and that's the thing i think that we as divorce professionals all need to recognize that i mean you already know this so preaching to the choir but i want people to understand this is that when you enter divorce, it is, of course, a time of tremendous fear. There's so much, everything's going to be, uh, you know, unsettled. We have, we don't know what's going to happen. The future's totally undecided. I get that. And the problem is, is that people then go and they are making decisions from a place of fear. And that's where yeah. they think, well, what I need to do is hire the meanest, baddest, you know, bulldog shark attorney. The problem is you, as we all know, is that we sit there and watch those lawyers just drain the accounts. They don't give a rat's ass about the family. They don't care about the situation and they're doing their job. And you know what? They're, I mean, they're good at doing their job, but they, it's, this isn't centered on the client. And when you're making decisions from that place of fear, you're vulnerable to being taken advantage of by a system that will exploit that fear. Absolutely. And that's just the truth. Yeah, I mean that that's kind of what I've been saying, you know, all along is that this it's the system that allows the exploitation to happen. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how we fix it. It's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot of collaboration amongst all the professionals. Um, but I wanted to at least start this conversation and see what brilliant ideas you guys have. Have you, well, have you had any? <laughs> I think what you're doing is the point is like, keep talking. We all need to be talking about the fact that you have, that people have options. It is perfectly possible to get divorced in a way that's consistent with your values, that you can stay true to who you are and to your family. And you can find a professional who will zealously advocate for you, but isn't there to just, you know, drain all your assets. Isn't there for their own ego. There was an attorney that said in Divorce Corp that there's never been a claim that an attorney was too zealous. It's <laughs> 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 funny because it's true. Um, you know, you can't sue your attorney uh, because they were too zealous. Um, mm -hmm. 
But you know what I'd like to see is I'd, I'd love it if we ever get to a place where when people think of divorce or if they're contemplating divorce, that their understanding is that it starts with mediation. I would love that. I mean, why can't we start with mediation? I mean, in New Jersey, you file the complaint, then you have a case management conference to establish a discovery schedule. And these things can take months. Just, I don't know why nobody gets around anything. I'd like to go maybe work at the courthouse for a little while and see what's <laughs> going on. It's been a while since I clerked, but I don't know why all these things take so long. And then at some point, months later, when discovery is done, you get what we call ESP, early settlement panel. It's an opportunity to involve some other lawyers, make a recommendation about a settlement. Yeah. And, you know, periodically have different things scheduled, but they all allow the parties an opportunity to settle. They get plenty of opportunities to settle. But why can't we do that a lot earlier? We don't have any of that. I mean, I'll say what we do is when once the divorce process is initiated, I will sit with people and I'll tell them, look, the, the interim arrangements that you're going to have to go through is very similar to what you're going to be deciding in a final divorce. So if you want to do that twice, you want to go through that process twice of coming up with possession schedules and support and interim bills and all of that, that's fine. Or in most cases, really and truly in most cases, we can get you to mediation within the first 60 days. And, you know, mm -hmm. we just have to get an agreement with the other side. Let's exchange the information that you all need that you don't have access to. And then let's get to mediation. And we settle a lot of cases that way. And it is so much more cost effective. And then the divorce is done, you know, three to four months after it's been filed. And yeah. I, I think the benefits to the family are tremendous. And it's a much simplified process. I agree with that wholeheartedly, Jennifer. We do that a lot as well. I mean, we we do have, you know, initial discovery that's mandated um, in, in Texas. And so that helps to get a lot of the information they need um, so that we can move forward. If, if one party doesn't know all of the financial information, we can still move forward pretty quickly and getting to mediation. And we definitely talk with our clients about getting there as quickly as possible, assuming that there aren't some of these crazy situations like protective orders or vi family violence or, you know, um, um, or complicated something. assets. You've got, complicated you've got assets. to get values and stuff like that. Some things will take longer. Sure. Sure. Well, you know what, if the Bezos can get divorced in what was it? Yeah. Months? With nobody knowing, with nobody I knowing, mean, they just did it. And <laughs> let's talk about Tom Brady and Giselle. You know, they got right? they got divorced yeah. in record time. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. the people, Christina, the people that you talked about that that think that they have to go into the divorce process fighting and they need a bulldog. Those people, I think, I think it's harder to get them to mediation early on because they just have that mindset of, well, I'm, I've got to gear up for a fight. I need a fight. Um, I, you know, those people I think could benefit by divorce coaching like John does. Um, and, or, um, you know, we do, um, seminars for women, um, hopefully we get to them before they file for divorce. So they also know like, look, there isn't, there's a lot of things you don't have to be afraid of. There's a lot of, a lot of the system is going to work the way it's going to protect everybody. Right. If you, if but you just have to know that. Um, and they don't know it until somebody tells them. And so if they can eliminate some of that fear, if they can work on their own mindset about how they're going to proceed with their life after the divorce, a lot of times if they can get out of that fight, fight or flight mode, then we can get to that mediation, you know, the a settlement. Lot these, a lot of these, I agree with that totally. Um, I, a lot of these things, though, are, you know, again, 
goes back to the attorneys who are mm-hmm. kind of, you know, the conductor from the very beginning, directing things, how, how things are going to go. And if you've got attorneys like us saying, well, let's go to mediation, let's resolve this, that's great. Then it's going to take on a completely different path than the attorney that says, well, let's just fire off a complaint. I, I know an mm-hmm. attorney that starts off every single case with an order to show cause. I don't know if you call them there, like an injunction. Um, every single case. And, you know, it's just not a nice way to introduce yourself. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I know there are cases made. There, look, I'm not saying there's never a case that needs that, but every single one you have, how is it you're getting it? You are getting every single one. So how yeah, is well, it that I, you introduce yourself? I want to know. I want to hear this. Like, what is what is the best way for the a divorce of the opposing party to introduce themselves? Well, you I know, you I've had attorneys just call me with even like if it's somebody I know too. But even if it's not, um, it's always nice when someone calls me. But how do they know who represents who? How do they know? Well, if they know, I mean, obviously, yeah. if they know, um, they would call me. Um, but usually, if I get the case first, um, I will just set, I'll encourage my client to let's just send a letter to your spouse and just say that I've been retained and we'd like to work towards an amicable resolution. And please have your attorney call me. Yeah. Um, but we all know that. And then you get to show cause. <laughs> sometimes they do call. Sometimes they do, you know, because everybody's different. Like maybe they've been talking about this for a long time and they're all, they're going in the same direction. Sometimes the other spouse is, you know, digging in their heels because they do not want this divorce. Right. So a lot does depend on the other side. Um, so if, if the other person is just doing nothing because they don't want this, then, then yeah, in those cases, we do have to file a com- complaint because they have to do something with that. Um, you know, I like to say the show will go on with or without them, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> but eventually yeah. they show up, um, you know, and, and, but even at any point, you know, if the person is being hostile, but then they come around cause they realize that, okay, this is happening and I can't avoid it. Then I'll, I'll suggest mediation. Well, okay, well, now that we're somewhat on the same page, let's go to mediation. Um, I'll especially recommend mediation if I think that part of the problem is the other attorney. Mm-hmm. So I need to get another person in the room. Yeah. So, I mean, it's never me, you guys. Okay. I just, <laughs> I assure you, it's never me. <laughs> what well, a coincidence you know, that there are four of us non, non-problem attorneys on the <laughs> Oh, I know. We're so I know. perfect. Well, I, you know, what's interesting, Christina, is, you know, because we do so much mediation without attorneys at all involved, mm. um, I actually just got off of mediation right before I got on with you guys that I that I think this is the fourth session I've had with these people. And if they both had attorneys, they would have already spent $50,000 in litigation mm. because they are that heated, but they committed to the process. And so I just keep them reminding them that they're committed to this process and there's discovery issues. There's appraisal issues. There's all kinds of stuff going on. But in my mind, I'm proving to myself that just because a situation is complex does not mean that it still can't go through a mediation process because, you know, we talk all the time. It's about agreeing to the process, not, you don't have to like each other. You don't even have to be able to look at each other. As long as you're committed to finding a resolution, that's all that it really takes. And so I think what ends up happening is if you go to an attorney who is sugarcoating everything for you, 
giving you your best case scenario about everything, you know, telling you, oh, yeah, you make $500,000 a year and your wife's been a stay-at-home mom for 20 years. You're not going to have to pay any alimony whatsoever. <laughs> if you're being told these lies, yeah. um, of course you're going to say, well, I'm not going to go to mediation. If that's what, if that's what a judge is going to give me, I'm going to go, you know, let's go do all this stuff. And so you need to, like, this is the problem is that if you don't have someone at the very beginning sort of course correcting their mindset, it doesn't really matter what the process looks like. If they already have it in their mind, oh, well, this is what's going to happen. I was told by my attorney, this is what's going to happen. And what happens? They go home and they tell their wife or their husband, well, my attorney told me this. Well, my attorney told me that. My attorney said, you're not getting anything. Right. You know, it's where it goes, that's where it goes off the rails, right? Like, I'll give you a great example. I just talked, I just had a divorce coaching client today, Teresa, who I may be sending your way because he's from your neck of the woods and um, uh, literally woodlands. Anyway, so. Um, it's the woodlands, John. Yeah, I, I know, I know. Well, I. Teresa, I grew up in Katy. I know it's the Woodlands. He knows. It, it, he knows. Oh, you guys always had you always had the nicest mall. That's why I always like to <laughs> like to come up there. Um, but you know, he like it was a situation where he made a lot more money, and he someone had told him, "Oh, in Texas, women never get alimony or some other nonsense." That I heard from him. They've been married for a very long time, and just in twenty minutes of just tough love talk. I already got his mindset course corrected, but if he had gone to the wrong attorney right off the bat and someone had told him or given him any indication that maybe that was a sustainable position after being married for almost 30 years, um, he probably would have stuck his, his heels in the ground. And that would have been a case that would have gone, you know, a year, I, which I understand, I guess in the Houston area, they get them done in a year. Um, it would have probably gone a year. They probably would have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars because there was plenty of money to be spent. So that's, I think at the end of the day, what we're doing here is the public needs to be educated because there's a lot of attorneys out there that will not educate right off the bat. And that I think is the big problem of it all, which is why I'm glad we're doing this. And I'm glad, I know, Jennifer, I know you've got a podcast that you, you do, you get people out there in the community you know tell them what's going on and try to educate them we just have to keep talking about this the more we talk about the more we bypass the problematic attorneys in our field the better all of our all of our clients are going to be yeah Yeah, they'll just get phased out (laughs) (laughs) hopefully i don't i don't know they're going anywhere but i like your optimism that's really great no i mean maybe maybe eventually they'll see the light too so no they won't they never will they just have to you know, we'd start retiring and just, you know, the, the new crop of attorneys will come in and replace them. I, thought- I do feel that I do feel like, the, the, you know, there's the old guard that is is worse about that type of litigation. And and it's gotten better over the years as <coughs> the new crop of attorneys comes in. I think, you know, there's always going to be some that are just going to be balls to the wall and are just going to fight, fight, fight. But but for the most part, I've been doing this. 27 years and I, I feel like it's gotten better. Yeah, I think it has. I mean, I think there are more mechanisms available and, and I think the system has over time has tried to implement new, like I said, there's always new opportunities throughout the case for people to settle. So I, I do think that the system gives people plenty of opportunities to settle, 
but it also is very hospitable to people that need to litigate because they can't agree on, you know, who should get the China, who should get the napkin rings, um, you know, stupid, like, and we're laughing, but these things actually happen. <laughs> John and I met from a case where the people couldn't, we're fighting over a crock pot. Mm. No. missing in the house we had a pez collection once i'm like really but anyway you know i mean i think a settlement settlement is important because you know people have the opportunity to really keep control of so much you know you're gonna you're gonna let go of the things that aren't that important you're gonna hold on to the things that are and if you have an opportunity to resolve your conflict and get on with your life and stop the fighting. It's so, so much better. And we just, we all know that. I was really curious to know, like, what did you all think about the experts and the discussion about the experts in Divorce Corp? Mm. I've, I've brought on a lot of the experts that are, are popular in our Dallas area. I've interviewed them on my podcast because I want people to know them and hear from them and, and, um, you know, kind of understand better the roles that they play because there's so many different roles. But I was just curious, like what you all thought. But I think, unfortunately, it's um, they're a part of the the system and the process when people just can't agree on things. I think most custody cases aren't really even about the kids. Sadly, I just don't think they are. I mean, you know, recent one we had, they they were literally fighting over one day. You know, the husband wanted like whatever he wanted. It was like one day more than what the wife wanted him to have. And they spent, they spent a, like over a hundred thousand dollars each on their divorce. And it, it's just, it's absurd to me. Like as a, as an outsider watching this, people just don't know how crazy that is. And I know they feel very strongly about it at the time, but it's crazy. It's crazy to spend the amount of money that people spend on legal fees and expert fees. Um, especially if they're fighting over one day. Or, oh my God. I mean, what yeah, do you yeah. guys think about the custody cases you've done? I, I mean, it's hard. As some of them, you know, I've certainly have been involved in the cases where we've had to remove children from a parent who's not functioning for a variety of different reasons. And um, those are the cases where I think the courts have just been so incredibly uh, helpful what is uh, that? in getting things resolved. Someone's I don't know. Going? It's me. Hold on, I'll come back, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I, I agree with, uh, I agree with that. I just think, you know, there's actually, I haven't had a custody expert involved in the case in so long because unless there's some legitimate issue with the fitness of a parent, I don't see why there's, I don't see how you can't figure out a time sharing arrangement between two parents with their schedules and everything. I mean, a mental health professional is not really going to help you with that. They're just going to give you an opinion. And we all know yeah. most of, most of the experts out there, we know kind of where their position is. Like we all know there's experts that are like a 50-50 expert. There's an expert that like yeah. know, tends to be more like go towards the wife a little bit more. But guess what? We all know that. So if you get an expert report from the other side from that expert, you're going to brush it off and say, well, that's, you know, that's just right. what they always say. So, I, But I do think the two legitimate experts that need to be involved in a lot of cases besides custody that I think should be involved are forensic experts whenever there's a, a small business. So, cause you got to get numbers to play with so that you can try to resolve the case. 
And the second one is an appraisal of a house. Like if we call that an expert. Other than those two experts, I think a custody expert should be used sparingly. And it should be for those situations where it's really, really, really important. Like someone wants to move out of state or there's an allegations of substance abuse or mental health problems or something like that. But other than that, I think yeah. the custody experts are way overused. I, I tend to agree. And I think a lot of times it's, you know, part of that. And I think I'm guilty of this a little bit too, is like, well, this is how you do it. <laughs> if they can't reach a custody agreement, well, then the next step is you get an expert. Because if you don't get an expert, then are you potentially committing malpractice? I mean, you're not going to go to court on a custody case with no expert, right? I mean, who's going to yeah. do that? Because um, nope. you're going to claim the like, It's almost like we're passing the buck. Let the expert figure this out. Let the expert be the one to make a recommendation. They, you know, they have PhD after their name. The judge will listen to them. <laughs> and, and oftentimes it becomes one more thing to argue about, right? Then I got to get right. an expert to discredit the expert. And now we're kind of off and running. And I, I always tell people when you're going in for a custody eval, like, I mean, nobody comes out of these things clean. Like everybody's got problems. And so like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not well, I fun. Think, I think too, you know, people, I think we need to emphasize to people that when this is all done, you're not going to be happy. You know, no one leaves skipping out of the courthouse, you know, like whatever you end up with, whether it's because a judge imposed it on you or you agreed to it, there are going to be things about it that you don't like. And I think if they're set up with that expectation right from the very beginning, I think that can be helpful. Um, and something else that keeps coming to mind too that I want to mention is a lot of the things we're talking about are things that they do already in collaborative law. Okay. And it's really too bad that we have to have this other thing called collaborative law to do divorce the way that everyone should really be doing it. Um, but a lot of these things they do in collaborative law. So, you know, they might, they might have, um, therapists involved or divorce coaches because absolutely, I can't tell you how many times I've been at a mediation that got heated and God, I wish there had been a therapist there. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm well, not a therapist. I don't know what, you know, sometimes what to say. The one thing I love about collaborative divorce is that we're all working together as a team to help the family. I mean, like there's a common goal. And even though, you know, we're advocates in the process, but the level of communication and the level of problem solving and the, the creativity that comes to bear, um, you know, I mean, I think collaborative offers so much. I wish, I wish people were asking for it more. I wish people were demanding yeah. it of their lawyers more. Um, and unfortunately, I think that they don't really know or what they hear about it is negative. And so people aren't demanding it. And I, I, I really I don't know. I mean, I don't really know because I don't, oh, I don't see the people that are asking for collaborative. I, I will say, I mean, I get a fair number of people that I'll have a consultation with that will ask about it. Um, but it, it, I mean, it requires some kind of special training that I took many years ago. I don't know how it has taken off. That's sort of actually maybe like an interesting question is what percentage of divorces are actually going towards collaborative rather than, you know, traditional litigation. I, what I, I mean, it seems like it's, it's sort of jurisdiction specific, for instance, like in Texas, I don't know about in Dallas, but I know Austin does a lot of collaborative in Houston. There's some, but not a lot. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. and that's probably a lot of 
a lot of based on how, what the lawyers think is appropriate and what they've what the clients are educated about and not knowing to ask for it. So yeah, um, I know there's a small network of attorneys in Jersey that do it, and and they have their entire practice is only collaborative. Mm -hmm. So they kind of have a hold on that market. Um, I'd love to see more people doing it. I'd love to see litigants that the first thing they think of is something like that rather yeah. than, oh, I have to go get a shark. Me too. Me too. I think, you know, that's, that's that education piece. We talk a lot about collaborative divorce in my practice. I, I do collaborative, but even so it's still less than 10%. And oftentimes I'll have people who are very interested in it, but then, you know, we can't enroll the other spouse in it because they go and hire a litigator. And so now but you know what? This only, this comment will only prove the point that divorce court was trying to make. I can't tell you how many attorneys I've talked to about it and they'll say, oh yeah, but if the case doesn't, if it falls through and you have to go to court, you can't <laughs> the case. Right. All they're worried about is the fee. The right. Fee exactly. <laughs> right. Okay, okay, so right there. Let's file a complaint then. Yeah. Yeah. If it falls out like that, I like I've I've had two cases out of I don't know a hundred or so that fell out, and I'm like, all right, then I, you'll go hire a litigator. And you know what? There's some really good litigators in town, and you'll have a lot of fun with them. I, like yeah. I think I think it's a perk. I'm happy to. Oh. I mean, unfortunately, I think we'll always have a lot of resistance to ways that we might come up with to change the system, because there's just too many lawyers that um, are accustomed to what they mm -hmm. do, and it's their livelihood, and they're just concerned about losing money. It's just how it is. Unfortunately, and I, I think what they're missing out on is the opportunity to really, you know, have a positive impact in somebody's life, to be able to get those reviews where people end the representation, they actually still, you know, want to remain in contact with you. And I, I think when you're litigating, like it's it's over and done, like, I, you know, anyway. Well, my feeling is there, you know, you, we can still make money. People are still going to be, they're still getting married in record numbers. Although I do hear the marriage rate is down, but hey, they're still getting married. Still as having babies. As, yeah. As long as people <laughs> still still have a baby. To fall in love and have sex and have babies. I don't think any of those three things are going away ever. Um, we will have a job. <laughs> so Amen. whether it's mediation or collaborative or whatever it is, I, I think we, we have some job security. Exactly. All right, kids. Well, this was fun. Thank you so much. And um, maybe we could do it again sometime. And maybe what we could do is um, just go around and like give like a very quick, like, do you have a suggestion? Like what, how to make the system better? Is there like, you know, I had suggested alimony guidelines yesterday. Um, does anybody have anything like that specific? I would really love to like learn more about what different jurisdictions do with regard to child support and custody arrangements. I mean, Texas is sort of a winner takes all. So you get primary and then you're receiving child support and you get more time with your kid. And I know other places are doing it differently. And I think, unfortunately, we're incentivizing this like win lose model. And yeah. I think there are better options out there. Um, so that was sort of one, one of my takeaways of areas where I would like to study a little bit more and, you know, see what, what better ideas there are out there. Awesome. I had also, and Sean, I know you and I have talked about this is um, having a statute in New Jersey that where there's a presumption of 50, 50 custody. 
That's such a good took topic. The words, <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth, Christine. Okay. I, I, I strongly think that there should be one. Strongly. And what about you? Because, because, because I mean, you're, you, you can still argue why it shouldn't be 50-50. You just create yeah. a presumption. But, but otherwise, I mean, then you create the incentives like you were just talking about, Jennifer. You create the financial incentives to fight about custody just because of that. Even though in New Jersey, our, our child support is really proportionate based on time sharing, how much time each person has with the child. Um, there still is a magic number. If a person gets a certain number of overnights a year, child support goes down. So I, I do think the 50-50 presumption is pretty good, particularly in this day and age. It's just, it's the times have changed, but I, that would be, I agree with you, Christina, that I think would make things um, a little bit better. I, I think so too. Maybe everything would make it better. Maybe we'll, we'll schedule a round table where we'll specifically just talk about that. What about you, Teresa, anything? So, I mean, those are all great topics and I think that would be important to talk about as well. I mean, you know, the one, the one, if I had a wish list um, thing, I would like to see different about our courts. And, and I don't know the best way to achieve this or if it's even possible, but, but I find that so much of the fighting, so much of the issues that we um, deal with have to do with one or both parties having a mental health issue, some personality disorder, something that, and, and the courts, they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to address it. You know, and in situations where we have kids that are being affected by one or both parents who have have these issues and are going to continue to have these issues, I would love if we could somehow figure out a way to to require counseling, require you know co-parenting beyond the divorce, co-parenting facilitation, counseling, all of that, so that these people, so they're not screwing up their kids so bad. <laughs> Another yeah, one. I mean, I say this all the time, and I feel like I'll get killed for it because some people might find it offensive. But I'm okay with this. Um, I, I say a divorce is not a legal process; it's a mental health event. Yeah, and because yeah. yeah. very often it is, yeah. and but yeah. yet we we go to court looking for the court to address a mental health event. Um, right. And they're so, not prepared to do so. They're prepared to deal with legal, and that's it. And so. No. No, it's just, they're not equipped to address it. So, um, all right, well, we're not going to solve this today, but soon <laughs> we're going to do it soon. Um, thank you guys. I'm going to put links to your websites in um, the comments. So anybody who's interested in following up with you guys or learning more about you, they can easily find you. And I have a feeling you'll be on here again. So thank you. Great. Thank, Thank you so you. much. It's fun. It fun. Right. Good to see you, Bye, John. guys. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.